0: Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about starter fertilizer issues. We have two members of Extension's Nutrient Management Team and an Extension Integrated Pest Management Specialist. Can you each give us a quick introduction?
1: This is Dan Kaiser. I am a nutrient management specialist with the University of Minnesota. I've uh, done a fair amount of uh, research, even dating back to my master's work on starter fertilizer. So this is something that um, looked at a lot of these issues over a number of years and uh, seen a lot of um, effects that starter can have on a lot of questions that growers have on starter fertilizer.
2: This is Jeff Vetch, I'm a researcher down here at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca. And like Dan, I've been working, uh, doing research with starter fertilizers, uh, both liquids and dries in different placements since the mid nineties and and even up to the current.
3: I'm Bruce Potter, uh, housed at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center in Lamberton, Uh, primarily an entomologist. I guess I'm on here just to uh, discuss some of the issues that can happen uh, as far as additions to uh, fertilizer uh, and furrow starter. so.
0: All right, starting off, can you talk about uh, liquid starter fertilizers and what makes them risky when applying on or near the seed?
1: Well, one thing with any uh, fertilizers, we know that they contain salt. And that's, I think the number one question I get from growers uh, when dealing with at least near seed placement both in furrow and then even some uh, banded placements is uh, salt damage from fertilizers. And we know that some fertilizers are worse than others. Um, Traditionally in the past when we've dealt with dry like a two by two placement or two inches to the side and two inches below the seed, um, normally our risk is a lot lower because we have soil uh, between the point at which the band is and where the seed is. And that's one of the the issues that we see a lot um, when we look at damage is if you start digging seeds, when we get damage, we, we see a lot of damage to the radical, which is the first root that will emerge out of the corn plant. And um, with salt or even nitrogen, um, that's I think one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot is that when we look at a lot of our issues, I think um, you know salt is, is certainly a problem, but nitrogen, particularly fertilizers that – Tend to liberate free ammonia that hangs around in the root zone that can be just as damaging or more damaging than salt. So, when looking at a starter, those are two key things that you really need to look at. Um, look at just the source itself, and uh, you know our rule of thumb right now is what we typically say is no more than 10 pounds of N plus K2O uh, if you're looking at your your starter sources applied in for or near the seed in a medium to fine textured soil. So. You see a lot of uh, growers out there with a lot of different um, opinions on how much can safely be applied. You you see a lot of different sources out there that vary in uh, where we see some of these quote unquote seed safe starters, which have a lower salt content due to what type of potassium they have. So... There's a lot of things out there. Um, the the big thing though is um, you know rate is is kind of the key. And with uh, when we're dealing with a liquid or particularly an infertile placement, we want to make sure that we're really putting a rate on that's more. Um, when we start looking at it, that's more applicable for what we're trying to do. And for the most part, most growers are really trying to speed uh, early season growth and get that seed out of the ground. So. Whether you're dealing with a, a starter, um, you know, really keep the nitrogen and the potassium down as much as possible um, because that's really what's going to be key um, when it comes to damage potential, particularly for an in-furrow placement.
2: And you know, Dan, not not all the crops are are created equal, so to speak. So we've got crops that are pretty tolerant of infertile fertilizers or, or fertilizers in general. Crops like corn, uh, all the small grains. But then there's crops that are not very tolerant and are extraordinarily susceptible to, to these uh, seedling damage, especially soybean and some others as well. But that's always something to think about. The, a study by Gelderman showed that soybeans were like six or seven times more sensitive than corn.
1: Yeah, and it's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I do get a lot of interest from growers, and it's particularly with soybean, and they're looking at trying to put fertilizer down. Many times they don't want to go in and, and pay for the broadcast application costs, so they're looking at other options. And, you know, certainly we have some success, particularly with products like soy green, which uh, go on in furrow, um, where we really see some, some yield benefits from that particular product um, in situations where there's iron chlorosis. But overall, uh, there's just a lot of risk. And that's one of the things that um, I'll always find at least one grower, uh, if not more, in some of the winter meetings that I'll talk to that have have tried some different application methods. Either they've tried a low salt product or um, something else, and they've had some negative results um, in terms of emergence. And as Jeff said, I mean, corn is traditionally um, more tolerant, although that tolerance is up to a point. With small grains, we know there's more tolerance there, but that's just because we know that um, in terms of emergence that we can suffer a little bit of um, loss in emergence because they'll tend to tiller and compensate uh, for that loss of plants. Corn won't. And that's one of the things that um, concerns me a little bit, um, you know, particularly when you start bringing in situations where we're looking for other options for fungicides and insecticides. And that's kind of one of the things that I've not been too up on and um, why I was hoping to have Bruce on here can talk a little bit more about what's going on there in terms of in options, because it does worry me when we start looking at some of these mixes, um, you know, just to be a little bit careful because the amount in, in terms of what growers are spending on seed right now, it gets pretty expensive if you start um, getting into situations where you're buying fertilizer and you start seeing some seed loss where you may have to look at replant situations.
2: Dan, do you think that, or can you give an example, but I assume that uh, some of the people that are putting starter fertilizers on soybeans are looking at like an ammoniated phosphate fertilizer, probably on high pH soils where they know they have low soil tests or their soil tests might be more low.
1: It could be ammoniated phosphate. Again, a lot of times it's uh, it's some of these low-salt mixes, like a 624-6 or maybe a three eighteen eighteen something that would be um, manufactured with potassium hydroxide or has potassium phosphate instead of potassium chloride. The issue, again, you know, you're looking at what's the issue with it. I mean, yes, we know salt is a problem, but ammonia could be just as big of an issue, and particularly uh, many of these low-salt products, they'll use urea um, to— put um, or at least to increase their nitrogen content and urea is one of our more damaging products. We've seen that with both dry and also with UAN. So we have to be careful with that because urea will liberate ammonia or ammonia as it's being hydrolyzed. So again, um, really there's no seed safe rate when it comes to in starter. So that's one of the things to remember when you start uh, messing with some of these things. I mean, you're, you're really accepting some risk when it comes to um placement and in particularly with more sensitive crops it's one of the things to really be careful because i think there are better options out there um than um you know inferral when it comes to trying to get a little bit more phosphorus to a uh, soybean crop but it's something we need to really look at because there's some other options for placement out there right now that i know we have been getting more questions on
3: and you mentioned uh you know, losing stand with corn and not being able to compensate from a pest management standpoint. uh, That's, that's a little bit uh, concerning in that it can, it can uh, impact your, your management decisions later on in the season. For example, if you're, if you're uh, teetering on the edge of an acceptable stand, and uh, you know, you might, you might end up be having to be a little more proactive on, on some of the stand reducing insects uh, later on, uh, just because just because you don't have that that buffer there at all.
1: And so, Bruce, it's been a few years. I mean, I did work on some um, work a while ago with Ken Osley in, in terms of insecticides. What options are out there? Because I know that's one of the reasons possibly to stick with inferral, uh, particularly with uh, seeing some of these, um, these traded hybrids, seeing some issues, particularly with rootworm, that um, there's been more of an influx of some of the liquid insecticides that can go with in furrow starters. So that's one of the things. Again, it, it's been a few years, so I'm not completely up to what's out there and what what are options for growers.
3: Well, I think uh, I think after this year, uh, we're gonna we're gonna have uh, more of this in the discussion. But rootworms are definitely uh, a, a significant uh, pest for corn. Uh, there's some some other secondary stand-reducing pests, and people want some insurance. Uh, for control of those things like wireworms and white grubs, that sort of thing, uh, so they might add a add a uh, liquid insecticide, and in furrow is an easy way to go. Um, so you've got you've got some pyrethroids, uh, you know, uh, bifenthrin. Uh, there's some labels for uh, lambda cyhalothrin, or uh, one of the uh, names is Warrior. Uh, those in those in furrow. um and then and then you've got some. Uh, things like that are a little bit more active on rootworms, things like force. uh, And we've got a liquid version of that. And there's a liquid version of uh, smart choice, which comes in is the granular form. um, And that's, uh, that's uh, index. So, um, you know, there, there's quite a range of of products guys are putting down in for over insecticides, both. uh, uh, Some of those are generic, so they're reasonably cheap. uh, But I guess my concern with this is you can look at it two ways. If you don't really have an insect problem, everything works. If you do have an insect problem, then uh, if if you're under really heavy rootworm pressure, um, some of these liquids are are not gonna provide suitable control. So uh, they're okay under low to moderate uh, pressure trying to maybe limp uh, a struggling uh, BT package through. We've got some resistant rootworms, but uh, they're not—they're not, they're not uh, as good as some of the some of the granules. And, and those granules do have problems too if it's dry, for example.
0: Should growers adjust their liquid in-furrow application rates in dry years?
2: Yeah, I think especially if they have coarse textured soils. Uh, I think there's a couple of challenges there. Though the first is—is is do they know it's going to stay dry? And that's—that's that's always the biggest challenge. Um, this year was an interesting year in that many fields were planted into fairly dry conditions and the forecast generally did not have a lot of rain so it probably was a uh, a year when growers should have paid a little more attention to that ironically as as many of you know the people pre prepay for a lot of that stuff and it's in the tanks and they've already made their decision on what their rates are going to be to get rid of it so to speak so how flexible they can be may or may not be as flexible as we might think they can be, if that makes sense. Um, you know, and I think, Dan, when I think of medium and fine textured soils with products like 1034 or 8 or 624 6 or some of those products, the, the common ones, you know, it, it only takes three, four, or maybe five gallons per acre or or less to get that starter effect. And the common application rates are three to six gallons because growers just don't want to carry that much product and fill that frequently. And most of the time on medium and fine textured soils, those are just fine and safe in furrow. Um, On a coarse textured soil, probably four or no more than four gallons. Uh, In a year like this year, maybe that's a little bit too much. I know there was some talk, Dan, concern about guys that had some in-furrow products and then also were putting some dribble bands of UAN and ATS. And was it the UAN and ATS? And generally, uh, you know, if those things are dribbled on the soil surface, either over the row or a couple, three inches from the row, that's probably not going to be an issue but certainly with some of the coarse textured soils and some of the dry conditions we had this year, maybe it was a bit of a factor. But generally, uh, those dribble bands should not be a, a big issue either.
1: Well, and that's one of the questions that I did get this spring. It was a grower that um, I talked to you know, last year. It was looking at going to the surface dribble band. And... Um, I think he was, I mean, it wasn't a very high rate of ammonium thiosulfate he was using. Um, I, you know, always usually what I'll ask a grower is, you know, are you sure that it was away from the rows where the rows sealing? Because that's one of the issues with the surface dribble band. You just need to make sure that there's absolutely no pathway for that uh, material, particularly if you're going with a higher rate to get down to the roots. And it's a little puzzling to me um, because I would normally not really expect to see much of an issue particularly um, in a dry year because really there's nothing to move that material down to the seed if there's no water and again if you're far enough away you know the only thing I could say is potentially you might get the ammonia creeping away from that band but um, with with the lack of water this year it just there's some strange things that happen so it's one of those things this year that um we know from some of the data that we can go maybe up to as much as eight gallons of 1034 and not see much of an issue in a, in a normal year, particularly in a, like a loam or a clay loam soil. This year just wasn't that, um, you know, and as Jeff said, I do agree that if we look at the data, if you're just looking for that overall starter effect, um, if you don't have high pH soils or have issues with phosphorus fixation, that two and a half, three gallons of 1034 is a good rate to stick with. Um, get at least around 10 pounds P2O5 that's usually sufficient for any starter source. If you're trying to get things off to a quicker start and I'm just probably something we'll talk about a little bit more this fall is, is talking about that more, just um, going through some of the data and showing some of that um, because it does concern me a little bit. um, And this was just the perfect storm of cool. I think things just weren't growing very fast and dry that um, we were more bound to see issues this year. And I I do wonder now too, with growers, um, you know, a lot of them are always, you know, have time to look at some of these new technologies with um, new technology, like the, um, the precision planning system, the, um, the furrow jet, whether some will look at that. Um, It's, it's kind of an intriguing system where you are looking at putting two bands to the side of the row. Um, The thing that there's some advantage is getting some soil between the the band and the, the seed that there might be some benefit there, but um, we haven't looked at it. And i have a few, have had a few questions on that particular system. Um, Something that I've been, you know, toying with looking at getting um, and putting on our planner to start doing some testing with it, just to to look at rate to see if it's um, gonna be safer. But um, there's again, no guarantees. And that's one of the issues. Uh, The other question that did pop up um, or the thing that did pop up um, was in the Southeast, some growers, um, I don't know if it was insecticide or fungicide. Recommending minimum carrier rates. So, you had growers that were pushing the envelope on 1030 furrow rates uh, just to get the carrier rate up. And, um, you know, I think the better option instead of pushing just straight liquid in those circumstances would be to do a lower rate of liquid with water um, if you need to get that carrier rate up because it's just a lot of risk, um, particularly with that amount of nitrogen going in furrow um, with, with any product out there that uh, you're risking some, some damage issues.
0: Is it a good idea to mix liquid fertilizer with fungicides or insecticides? Is there any data out there on the pros and cons, particularly for infill placement?
3: Well, I think I think uh, you know Dan kind of hit on part of this is the, is the amount of carrier you need. Uh, with most of the insecticide uh, work, we're looking at five gallons. Um, typically, guys are going with something like a ten thirty four to put that on. Um, you know, and, and but again, if you're going to add an insecticide, um, there should be a reason for doing it. Either you're expecting uh, some sort of stand-reducing insect, or you're trying to to uh, help with uh, you know corn rootworm management. Um, we're, t- we're we're putting more and more stuff on the seed, and, and I can see that same thing probably happening to adding adding more and more compounds to uh, if people are using liquid starter. Um, it's fast it's con, you know convenient for guys uh but it is a little bit high risk um you know and and i'm not aware of any insecticide interactions with uh with uh, liquid fertilizers there's some uh, conversations going on right now about uh, some of the some of the fungicides um you know are 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 they adding to uh, some of the injury from uh, uh from it well from liquid insecticides, um, we don't have a lot of data on that yet. But again, you're just adding—you're uh, always adding potential for for more things to happen, particularly with compounds that we haven't played a lot with in the past, relatively new products.
1: Well, and with the fungicides, Bruce, I know just in some of the work we have done with uh, Yoakam, Wiersma, and Wheat, you know, he talks a lot about that. Um, you know, looking at some of these post-anthesis applications of nitrogen to boost protein to avoid applying it with the fungicide because it can get really hot and you see a lot of burning potential. So I think there's there's some good questions there. I mean, I've also seen I mean, issues with, with some starter sources. So I mean, it's one of the things you really need to watch out for when you're mixing some of these things, just to make sure that, um, or at least know if there's any data out there on the safety of it, um, because again, nothing's truly safe. Um, and you know, you start, like this year, particularly since we're having such a struggle to get things going in the spring, you really don't want to do anything that's going to set it back. And um, particularly when you're paying money for inputs, it, it's kind of a tough pill to swallow when you um, you pay money and then you've, you have, again, all the investment in seed costs that, that there is right now with a lot of these traded seeds that um, it's just um, having issues where you, you see that crop not come out of the ground and having to replant, it gets to be a pretty expensive uh, proposition. So I just, um, you know, it does concern me a little bit. Um, and I think the best way to think is just to look at what's the minimum rate you need to get what you're trying to do. Because again, most growers, when I look at it, they're really looking at that starter effect, um, for, particularly for the in and it doesn't take a lot of fertilizer to do that. So if you're not using an in which you really can't for a significant portion, generally of your fertilizer needs, particularly if you're in your low or very low testing, you need to just look at what the, those minimum rates to kind of get you, get you what you need to, to do. And again, that two and a half, the three gallons of 1030 furrow, we've seen some pretty good results with that. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, opportunity there to look at potentially cutting some of the rates and um, looking at, uh, you know, maybe putting a little more broadcast on, uh, because it's one of the things that we see that um, I think the two together can work very well, the, the in-furrow and the broadcast, but um in general, you get to a certain point that the inferrow just isn't going to be enough, and um, that's kind of one of the things we see. Anything less than a medium soil test, you're likely not going to be able to to supplement all your your phosphorus with an inferrow placement, uh, particularly for an on seed placement.
0: Bruce, can you comment on uh, whether infertile fungicides and insecticides are worth the cost?
3: It really depends on on if you're if you're going after a problem, um, or expecting a problem. And, and you're putting on something to uh, address that problem. Some of these products, both fungicides um, and insecticides, are very good on specific uh, insects and diseases. So if you're if you're in a situation where you're you're uh, wanting to uh, to manage manage one of those, uh, it's it's a good idea. You'll probably make a money. Uh, you know, get your money back on it. If there's always a, a, a little uh, interaction there, though, that some of these have post-emerge options that you can wait and see uh, if you're developing a disease later on for example put a foliar treatment on Uh, some of these uh, insecticides uh, not so much with most of the liquid insect inferral insecticides but there's some some issues with interactions with some of the herbicides and corn rootworm insecticides for example anything that's got an organophosphate uh, uh, when you when you uh, you're putting on an ALS herbicide onto that crop you could have some some issues later on. Um, so if, if it's specifically dollars and cents you know from a from a IPM perspective it's uh, deal with insects you know you're going to have a problem. Um, there's some high risk situations that you're maybe going to want to put a, a, a plant insecticide on uh, for example, planting after sod and, and expect, or you've got a field that you have a history of white grubs, that sort of thing. But in general, just an insurance insecticide isn't going to pay either on corn or soybeans. All
0: right. Any last thoughts from the group? Well, there's one thing I get
1: a lot of questions on, and that's the source side of things. Um, You know, what's the best option for a grower? Uh, We get a lot, always a lot of questions, particularly for the higher cost, uh, some of these low salt products. Are they worth it or not? Um, It really depends on your situation. Um, Really, for your growth, your early growth benefit, phosphorus is key. Um, So, that's one of the things to remember. And any of the other things, the micros, um, you know, zinc is always one that's always get asked a lot of questions on. I think we've seen, Jeff, you've seen some varying results with um, some of the in zinc sources. Um, and then, um, you know, potassium is one of those, too, because many of these, um, these low-salt products will contain a small amount of potassium. Um, it's not going to be anywhere near what the plant's going to take up. Uh, there is some uh, newer products out there um, with potassium acetate that are you can blend in. Um, I haven't looked at any of those to see in terms of uh, the overall effectiveness of it. It really boils down to, though, if you start looking at yield, is what does that crop need? And um, when it comes to um, you know early growth phosphorus, we're going to tend to always get a growth boost no matter what our soil test is. Then if you're starting to look at trying to pay for that starter with um, with yield, then it just boils down to, is any of the new, are any of the nutrients deficient in the particular field? So that's one of the things to kind of remember, and I think that's why you see a lot of growers, um, you know, liquid infurals come and go in some areas, and I think a lot of that's because growers have started to take a look at whether or not there was a yield boost. And while visually they could see some differences, they weren't just we weren't picking up the yield now with some of these liquid insecticide options, you know, will we see more of a increase? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it it does give the growers another option. Um, Although as Bruce said, um, you know, may not be a great option if you've got heavy pressure, but um, but that, you know, could help in terms of seeing more liquid liquid attachments on planters. But um, it's just amazing to me that the number of options growers have and the number of products out there, and you get a lot of questions on it and it's, I guess, really boils down to what you're trying to do. And um, so that's usually what I'll work with the growers, trying to just figure out what exactly they're trying to do, what they want to apply, and just see what's the best option. Is in a good option? Is surface dribble band a good option? I mean, there's, there's certainly, I think, pros and cons of everything out there.
2: Yeah, Dan, you mentioned the zinc, and I think, in my opinion, it's probably the one product that's put in more in more starter fertilizer tanks that's probably not giving much return on investment. At least that was my experience from the study I did back in 2000. I think that was uh, 7 through 10 or something like that. We had uh, 10 site years, only saw one year, one site that responded to zinc and furrow uh, with, with uh, 1030 furrow, and seven of those sites had soil test zinc that was below the critical value. Um, So it just, it didn't seem, we would get zinc early plant deficiency symptoms and the zinc in the furrow would clean that up, but the control plot still yielded just as well as the fertilizer treatment or zinc treatment plots in in most of those sites.
3: Yeah, the only thing I I can add I think is that, uh, you know, if you're talking about adding a pesticide to a liquid fertilizer, you know, it's important to read the label, uh, read what they recommend for carriers, rec- read what they uh, uh, allow the label allows you to mix. Um, and, and it's a good fit in some situations, although I, I contend that if a guy's reduced to trying to manage uh, corn rootworms in uh, in uh, a PT rootworm hybrid with liquid fertilizer, uh, we've got uh, already got an unsolvable problem, and we have to take some, do something else. Um, and, and in the case of adding fungicides or insecticides, um, there's always some, some other choices you can make uh, as far as management uh, and uh, either rotation or, or uh, even in your variety selection for disease that, that are gonna be just as good and probably cheaper than a fungicide.
0: All right. That about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.